welcome uh, Brian from Maculogics and Dr. Amanda Lee from Maculogics. And um, I really think it's important for all of us to kind of start wrapping our minds around this idea of being able to detect macular degeneration as early as possible. And, um, you know, I've had the pleasure to really dig into this literature really deeply. And I'll tell you what, it's very, very compelling when you listen to the story that's, that's built within the, the evidence um, that occurs within detecting macular degeneration early with being able to identify patients who have delayed dark adaptation. So um, Amanda has, is really an expert on this issue, and, um, and I think it's going to be exciting to have her uh, discuss what she sees and how she's implemented in this, or this into her practice, because you're going to see a lot more of this um, as we get into some of the new uh, AMD protocol that we'll be rolling out uh, in the next month to two months. Today's show is sponsored by iCode Education. At iCode Education, we create and host high-quality, relevant, COPE-approved online optometric CE. We offer practice management courses from billing and coding, fee assessment, and chart auditing, to clinical courses that focus on topics ranging from the anterior segment to the posterior segment, to myopia control and neurological disease. Additionally, we partner with associations to help them provide their members and non-members with online continuing education at their own pace, on their own schedule. This allows our associations to generate non-dues revenue and provide a valuable service for their members who are allowed to obtain hours from distance learning entities. Check us out at iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. One more time, E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. Chris, um, I, I do want to qualify everything. I, I am no expert. I am a clinician, just like you all. Uh, I have stepped out of my clinical um, career path just less than a year ago to take on this role at, at uh, Maculogics so that we can help more doctors prevent vision loss from age-related macular degeneration. So that's really the why behind uh tonight and, and ultimately why I'm here with you and I just like to go through uh, some some science some information some background so that uh, everyone can come up to speed just like I had to do about a year ago so um, you know I, I'm gonna start by really evoking some history of optometry and and really starting to think about things um, that occurred for us back in the 1980s. You know, optometrists back then were using a direct ophthalmoscope to look into the back of the eyes of patients to judge cup to disc ratios. And they were doing that in order to diagnose glaucoma. And some of us might remember, depending on um, who's on the line tonight, but some of us might remember that we were also testing visual field loss using the Golden Bowl or even worse, a tangent screen. And it really wasn't until Humphrey came along to create the automated visual field perimeter that we really began to understand the importance of functional testing in the clinical setting. And if you fast forward to today, you can easily see how the automated visual field perimeter has become the standard of care in glaucoma to diagnose and, and uh, manage our patients. Well, tonight, we're kind of 
going to walk you down a familiar pathway and ask you to make your own decision on the care that you provide to your patients in regards to AMD. So um, this talk obviously is sponsored by Maculogics and I'm part of their team. Um, and really that's because I believe in their, uh, their, their vision of eliminating blindness caused by AMD. It's, it's a bold statement. And I feel like optometry is actually very well aligned with this particular statement. It's what we do all day, every day. We prevent patients from, from vision loss and we do everything we can in our powers to make sure that doesn't happen for our patients, no matter what the entity or disease state looks like. And I hope by the end of this presentation, you'll agree that together we can actually achieve this goal. So we're gonna go through um, a bunch of stuff. We've got, actually got a lot to cover, but I'm gonna start with the current state of AMD and review the traditional methods of how we diagnose. We'll discuss a little bit about dark adaptation and how the ADAPT-DX dark adaptometer can lead to earlier diagnosis and better outcomes. And I'll also discuss treatment guidelines to slow the progression of AMD and walk you through how this can become an elevated state of care for our patients. But let's set the stage. First and foremost, by putting AMD into, its, in, into perspective, really. Um, I didn't know this going into the, to, uh, studying this disease, that AMD is really three to five times more prevalent than glaucoma. And the prevalence of AMD has really been conservatively estimated at 9 million Americans, but, but more recent information has come to fruition and it's pushing that number higher um, and up, point, up to that point of 14 million. It's almost twice as prevalent as diabetic retinopathy. So I always ask doctors, do you see a lot of glaucoma? Or do you see a lot of diabetic patients? And the answer is, of course, always yes, we always do. Um, but they don't think about AMD in that, in that same fold or that same regard. So um, we're trying to bring that to the forefront. And really, while this disease is completely age-related, it doesn't mean that it just affects our elderly patients. In fact, we're seeing AMD in one out of 14 adults over 40. And that jumps to one out of eight over 60. And, and if you think about a 60-year-old, that's really a, a fairly young age. And I can say that because I'm you know, 50 now and, and 60 doesn't seem that far down the road. But um, those folks, if you think about them as they come through our clinics, they're very active and healthy. They don't want to have these sorts of things occur with their eye care health. Um, so just contemplate that as you're, as you're thinking about these prevalence numbers and how that might impact your clinic. Can Go I ahead. jump in really quick? I, I was running some, some numbers for the AMD protocol. And if you look at a, a practice that um, has about 2,000 patients for one doc, and you assume that there's, um, and you assume that there's about tw um, one in 20 of their patients will have AMD, mm -hmm. the economics for that practice, it, based on CMS data, so CMS payment data, the economics on that using some of the new protocol um, things and, and ADAPT-DX is included in there is worth between um, $95,000 a year and about $109,000 a year. That's CMS data, which is very conservative based on other payers. So I guess the bottom line with that is that as you're showing this stuff, it really is compelling to think that, um, that it's absolutely something that's worthwhile managing in your practice. Of course. I, I, and I will always state first and foremost, Chris, that if we're doing the right thing for the patient, tends to turn out to be the right thing for the, the practice or the clinic. 
and it just it, it is what we have lived with the experience of this particular technology over time. So absolutely true. Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, it's okay. Um, moving on, you know, when we talk about AMD, unfortunately, we're really not doing a great job as a profession of diagnosing this disease. In fact, we tend to be missing it often um, when we're doing routine clinical exams. And this particular study that, that we're going to talk about that was published in JAMA of Ophthalmology was a study that went out into the um, Birmingham, Alabama area, and they recruited optometry and ophthalmology and said, hey, docs, please send us your healthy retinal patients. You can do anything you want to test them to ensure that they're healthy. But once you send them, just know we're going to grade them based on AREDS protocol and check to see if they have AMD. What happened was 25% of those folks who were, who were normal um, or, or who doctors thought were normal actually had AMD. Um, and that was identified by grading of the fundus imaging, same type of grading that occurred in the ARES study. But what was worse is that about a third of those 25% actually had intermediate AMD, which would require some type of ARES to treatment based on our understanding of standard of care today. ODs and MDs actually missed this equally, so there was no difference between the two professions. The point of it is, though those doctors actually knew they were being watched. They knew they were recruiting their own patients and saying that they were healthy or stating they were healthy, sending them in, and that just wasn't always the case. So I always ask doctors when they think about the study, what would you feel was, a, was accurate in your clinic if no one was looking over your shoulder? So are you missing 25% if someone's looking at you, or are you missing more if no one's looking at you kind of information? So just an interesting tidbit. AMD is a huge healthcare problem in our economic system. In fact, it burdens our, our GDP to the point of about $30 billion with a B, um, which is, is uh, both direct and indirect costs to the disease. So think about everything from you know, uh, diagnosis management in our clinics, but also caregivers and what occurs when someone is disabled due to this particular disease. What I want to point, about, point out about this $30 billion number is this is data that came out of a study from 2005. So it's actually quite old, and it's likely much, much higher than that today, although no one has come back and repeated this study to show us some of the more current data. Where we pair up as optometrists, if you look at the disease state in general compared to other diseases in medicine, we're over... Um, twice as likely to uh, occur from a prevalence standpoint than Alzheimer's, which we hear about all the time. And we're almost equal to all invasive cancers, um, of course, which is always uh, discussed in uh, medicine, both from an economic standpoint and also uh, a patient care standpoint. So optometry really has an opportunity here to change the outcome of this particular disease, but also change how optometry is viewed within the medical community, which I think is really something that we don't always consider um, when we're looking at things like this. So, 
Most patients, though, uh, present with vision loss, and they do that uh, over 78% of the time. When you look at that 78%, almost half of them have poor acuity outcomes of 2200 or worse. And they're presenting with this vision loss um, as almost a self-diagnosis, meaning that we as our as their eye care providers don't necessarily know that they have this, this particular loss because they go directly to their um, primary care professional or even pass that in, into the retinal specialist um, because their vision is so poor. And oftentimes we don't notice or don't know that that's occurring. It's due to the fact that we're not really adequately detecting these diseases or, or this disease with our current methods. There's good news about that. Though. And the good news is that we can flip those outcomes with this particular technology um, because it has 90% accuracy. It's specific and sensitive to AMD, and so it allows us to be able to detect it at a much earlier state. And before we really go any further into this, um, I really want to bring this home to a patient. And the reason I want to do that is this is a real patient in our clinic. Uh, this is Jane. She's 59. She's got no family history of AMD. She doesn't smoke. Um, when you examine her, she really doesn't have any drusen or any other retinal anomalies. She corrects a 2020 in both eyes. And the only chief complaint that she has is that she mentions having difficulty seeing at night. So note that in your history um, because it, it, it is important and we often overlook that. There are well-established risk factors for AMD as well as some generally accepted ones like um, light exposure, ultraviolet and blue light, um, systemic disease issues. But really when you think about Jane and her case history, she doesn't have any of these things, not enough of them anyway to warrant some concern. And one of the reasons we're missing AMD early is that the traditional symptoms of the disease are really associated with intermediate to advanced stages. If they're presenting with dramatic change in visual acuity, blurry vision, or even scotomas, that means they've probably been living with AMD for years before it's been noticed. While Jane mentioned this difficulty with seeing at night, we've really been taught to consider that as a symptom of cataracts, which we've ruled out in her particular case. So I want you to keep in mind that 2020 vision doesn't necessarily rule out AMD. Based on the Beckman classification, which was actually created to simplify the nine stages of AMD and ARIDS and ARIDS2, AMD diagnosis is very, very dependent upon structural changes, and that means that early diagnosis isn't made until drusen are clearly visible, and progression is based on the increasing side of the drusen. So I always ask doctors when we're in a, a dinner meeting, how many of you guys actually measure the size of drusen compared to other retinal anatomy or even using your sophisticated OCT equipment. Anybody, anybody want to raise their hand and say they do actually measure the drusen? I think you're right, Amanda. Most people, most people won't, won't do that. Um, but I've, I've seen you give that talk and, and, uh, and there's very few people that actually raise their hands. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's pretty true. Um, and I certainly didn't, so I have to be lumped into that category myself, honestly. Uh, but there's a quick and dirty way to measure drusen. So when we're looking at the categories, 
um, we want to understand, you know, what is 63 microns or 125 microns? And a, a quick and dirty method to measure is to use the central retinal vein, and, and that is in diameter about 125 microns. So when you look at this particular picture of patient that, that we brought, this particular Jusen will be around 63. This one is somewhere between 63 and 125. This large juice at a, over 125 microns, uh, greater than that central retinal vein diameter, really puts you in a category of intermediate juice and require, based on current standards of care, an ARIDS-2 protocol. So I ask doctors all the time, if you saw one drusen, one druse, 125 microns, would you actually diagnose AMD? Would you actually start treatment in that patient based on current standards of care? Most of the time, I think clinicians are pretty honest about that. They might say, nah, I might not. It's just one. It's small. It's isolated. I tell the patient it's an age spot whatever it might be. And, and I feel like oftentimes we're missing the underlying issue here and not necessarily taking that on as the stage of disease that it is. Amanda, why do you think that is? Why do you think they're hesitant to make that diagnosis um, as opposed to just saying, this might be the earliest signs. I've seen a lot of that. Like this is the earliest signs of AMD. And what do you think makes doctors hesitant to actually make that, uh, make that diagnosis and then make the recommendation? You know, I think the biggest thing, Chris, is that this particular disease has always been troublesome for us because we never had the ability to treat or manage the disease in history. And so we would tell patients, and I can remember graduating optometry school in 1998, I can remember telling patients, hey, you've got AMD, and oh, by the way, there's nothing we can do. You know, that was never fun for us as clinicians. It was our version of, of telling a patient they have cancer, almost. It's a visual death sentence that we had no control over. So we never wanted to get involved in that conversation. It's difficult, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's time consuming in the clinic. So we were never very good at that, which, you know, fast forward today, luckily we have some alternatives, which is nice. Um, and, and that's what we'll move forward to talk about. And I, I really think that, that we do need to pay attention to this particular technology because there is actually one more thing to consider in this disease and that is in cases like Jane we can consider um, dark adaptation and in this particular study which was the all-star study done at UAB they are, were able to show that um, the functional biomarker of AMD was impaired dark adaptation and in fact it showed that you could identify AMD up to three years before you could see any clinically ev evident drusen, which I thought was, was pretty impactful. So if we know that there's a functional deficit um, and we're able to find this sort of subclinical stage, um, we should be able to change the outcome of this disease and prevent any of that irreversible vision loss that we've been seeing over time. And, and Amanda, if I can jump in here too, um, when, when I was talking to uh, uh, Dr. Johnson, Greg Johnson, uh, about this, um, you know, one of the things he pointed out was that the, the study stopped at three years. So, it did. So you can't know, I mean, you can kind of in, into, into, it, into it, you can sort of infer that eventually all these patients are going to wind up with AMD. We just don't know. We just stopped looking at, at 
three years, right? Or the vast majority of them likely will. They did. And, and to be completely transparent, that study was limited by the NIH's decision to stop it at three years. There is some data that continues to come from this particular mm. study, um, but it, you are absolutely right. So when, when we say up to three years, it could actually be more, but they weren't willing to continue on with the, the um, protocol as designed originally. So, and that, that typically boils down to financial decisions that are made um, based on how many studies they're doing and what disease states are paying attention to. And so there's a lot of things that, that come into play there, not, not just was this worthwhile to an AMD patient. Of course it is. Right. Um, so, um, but yeah, you know, when we go back to Jane, you know, Jane really didn't pre present with any of those traditional signs. She was a, a healthy patient for the most part. Um, all she had was that chief complaint of difficulty seeing at night. And for her, you know, this is really due to an invisible layer of cholesterol that's building up along Brooks' membrane below the RPE. And, and we now know due to research, in fact, 15 years of research, um, which when I, when I joined this company, I didn't realize it had panned the depths of 15 years. Um, but that research was done by histopathologists uh, who dissected donor eyes back in the day to discover this basal laminar and basal linear deposits of cholesterol that can't be seen with our current imaging technology. So in, one of the things they discovered is that this cholesterol is identi identical to the type of cholesterol that's found in the plaques and arterial sclerosis. But the difference is that it's locally generated inside the eye by the RPE cells. And while it's not really visible, um, to our current imaging, it's creating oxidative stress and inflammation. And really more importantly, it's blocking transport of nutrients like vitamin A to the photoreceptors. So we all know that the chorocapillaris passes nutrition through Brooks membrane and into the RPE. And when that is impaired by this cholesterol slick, for lack of a better term, um, the rhodopsin that um, is involved in regenerating the visual cycle cannot occur. And because of that, that's really why dark adaptation is impaired. It's why this whole particular um, test works to identify this disease at such an early state. Well, eventually this layer of cholesterol, there's cholesterol slick in the retina, and specifically in our patient Jane, aggregates and finally forms drusen which hopefully most of us will be able to identify uh, with our routine fundus exam. But actually, this could be lying there for years um, and creating damage to the retina before we understand that it's even in existence. Really, since we can't extract Jane's eye to perform histopathology, because Jane really wouldn't like that much, not a good practice builder, um, we have to find an alternative way to uncover the underlying issue. And, and because of the research, we know that there's an earlier symptom for this particular disease, and that's impaired dark adaptation. For our patients, this, this presents as a night vision complaint, something that we often hear from our patients over 50. And there have been numerous studies to confirm that night vision is affected early on in AMD. And I always ask audiences um, when we're having dinner events, you know, it, when a patient complains of difficulty seeing at night, what do you think of? Yeah, absolutely. Cataracts is the first thing that yes. we're trained to think of. Of course. It's, it's, 
we, we talk it up to cataracts or if we know cataracts aren't really there, we might say, yeah, it's typical aging changes that are occurring and they're just not adapting as quickly. Um, so it's one of those things that I think when you start to hear patients and really pay attention to this chief complaint, you'll start to understand that it isn't always cataracts. AMD um, is likely a larger, um, um, char uh, larger cause of this particular chief complaint. In this particular um, complaint, night vision is, is impaired before day vision. And I want folks to understand why or how this occurs. The rods are generally the ones that typically are responsible for our night vision, right? And when you think about the macula and how it's laid out physiologically, there are nine times more rods than cones. Because the rods are only fed nutrition-wise from the choriocapillaris up through Brooks membrane, they actually become sick when that channel or that pathway is impaired by the cholesterol. When that occurs, um, they can't regenerate that rod rhodopsin in the quantities that they need to, and it's actually a one-to-one -one ratio. And when they can't do that, night vision becomes an issue. If you look at the cones, however, that nine to one ratio, the cones actually do become sick eventually, but they actually have a dual support system. They're supported not only by the RPE cells, but also by the surrounding um, cellular matrix, and they get fed in a different way or a second pathway. So they become sick eventually because RPE cells um, can't support them, but it's much, much later in the stage. Of of the disease. So when you're looking at color vision or contrast sensitivity, that is impaired in AMD, but it's not as soon as dark adaptation is. So the whole point of this is really, we need to start asking our patients over the age of 50 about their night vision and whether or not they have any issues. Any questions about that? So what we're proposing um, as, a, as a company and really as caregivers in, in general from, from an optometry standpoint is that we include function with this structural um, classification system. So we want to include subclinical AMD, which would include no drusen or, or very small drusen and impaired dark adaptation to give us a more comprehensive um, classification system. Really, modern dark adaptation is fairly new. Um, dark adaptation has been around for years and years and years. It's primarily been used in the university visual physiology labs, um, but it wasn't very practical for clinicians. It took too long to take the test. Reports weren't automated, and for the patients, it just wasn't comfortable. They had to be dilated. They had to sit in a dark room for 30 to 60 minutes before they even started the test. And that's just not something that we can apply to our modern day clinic uh, from an efficiency standpoint. Fortunately, the folks at Maculogics created the AdaptDX, which gives us the first dark adaptometer for routine clinical use. And it's capable of running two different testing sequences, a rapid test and an extended test. And I want you to think about that much like you would think about a visual field, which has a screening field and a threshold field.
was actually validated at a multi-site multi-site study and I think uh, most of us could not argue that these are pretty prestigious institutions, but it was um, very highly sensitive in correcting folks who actually have AMD over 90.6% of the time. Highly specific, meaning it, correct, it, it found or identified folks who don't have the disease, they're normal over 90% of the time, and it's highly accurate um, for detecting that disease. I always ask doctors how how good is good? Do you, do you want to take a guess at how accurate a visual field might be at detecting glaucoma? And the, and the answer for that is really that the average report of visual field accuracy is around 90%. So making AMD diagnosis through dark adaptation testing is very on par with detecting um, visual field def defects with glaucoma. So it's very, very good. What's interesting, um, if, I, if I can point a couple of things out with this study, Amanda, the first thing that I think is interesting is what you're looking at is you're comparing, this study compared photographic um, uh, evidence just like, like they would with AREDs, correct? Like fundus photos to the ability for an up or down, a yes right. or no uh, from, from the um, adaptation time, the dark adaptation time from this test. Correct. So you're you're comparing it to visual fields, which which is uh, which is excellent because we all sort of understand visual fields. But actually, the answer yes or no becomes even easier than interpreting interpreting a visual field because it's just is the dark adaptation delayed beyond a certain time point, and if so, yes. If not, no. And and that correlates to 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 uh, fundus photo photography. The other thing that I think is interesting, which wasn't contained in this study, but I think is interesting, is that if I remember right, um, the, a retinal specialist's ability on a slit lamp to detect AMD is like 82% uh, sensitive. So That's correct. Better than a retinal uh, specialist with just a, uh, a slit lamp uh, and a, a fundus lens. So yeah. I think that's just interesting. Yeah, very, very much so. So the test is actually quite easy to use and administrate um, within our clinics. Really don't have to dilate the patient beforehand, although you can if they are dilated and you want to do the test while they're uh, waiting for the dilation, that's great. You don't um, have to worry about ana analysis. In other words, like Chris said, it, it gives you an a, um, objective measurement. Um, and technicians and patients, both in our clinics, report that it's very easy to deliver and take. Of course, it's FDA cleared or wouldn't be here. And the uh, printout for the test looks, looks just like this. Uh, it's very easy for our, for our clinicians to read and interpret. It assesses the reliability of the test. Uh, so if you have fixation error rates that are greater than 30%, just like a visual field, um, it would not be a valid test, and you might want to test the other eye. Um, but you look in the rapid test, or you, you could look at it as the same as a screening visual field, the rapid test runs up to six and a half minutes. And if a patient does not dark adapt within that period of time, they actually fail the test, and it's consistent and you can be 90% accurate, as we were talking about just a moment ago, with AMD. In other words, if in the screening, they don't dark adapt within six and a half minutes, they have disease. And it took us a long time 
in our own clinic to understand that it wasn't that they were at risk for this particular disease. It was that they actually had this disease. And so from that point, whether we could see drusen in the retina or not, we wanted to make sure we were on top of their eye care and understood who was at risk um, for uh, ultimately CNV in, in the end, uh, which is the part. Can I ask you a question on that? You, sure. um, you said they actually have the disease. It's just a totally, I mean, it's going to take a lot of doctors a lot of time to kind of wrap their minds around it, just as, it, sure. did, just as it does me. And, um, and so, but the, the first question a lot of docs have is, you know, you take a visual field and it comes out funky. It could be optic nerve drusen. If we just looked at the field and didn't look at the nerve, it could be optic nerve drusen. It could be, you know, uh, some other, you know, maybe it's a BRVO or, you know, right. something else. Right. But this, right. in fact, the, the location of, of the presentation of the spots, um, there's really nothing else it can be. Is that correct? Well, there are other things which we'll go through in just a moment, Chris. Okay. When you look at those other things, they're really um, zebras and AMD is the horse, right. right? So it is vastly overpowering and it is this disease if dark adaptation is, is impaired. So, um, and, and we'll get to that clinical list in just a second, but yeah, it's a great point. And it took my partner and I um, probably about two and a half to three months to figure out that no, our patients weren't just at risk for the disease if they failed the rapid test. They actually had AMD. Yeah. We had to really wrap our mind around this, as you pointed out, and it, it took a little bit of, of change. There is a CPT code that's been around for a long, long time because they've been using this in the, in the physiology labs for years and years and years. Average reimbursement for it's about 63 close nationwide. Um, you can do as many tests as you need to that are clinically appropriate, and you don't have to test both eyes. You can just test one eye, which is great. You can bill it with OCT, fundus imaging, and other um, visual field testing, and office visits. And this is the ICD-10 code list that is appropriate. So you can see things like vitamin A deficiency, um, RPE, R, sorry, RP would fall into this. But when you're thinking about disease states, um, AMD is a vast, vast majority, and RP, uh, retinitis pigmentosa, would be the second leading cause of impaired dark adaptation. And when we look at prevalence of RP, it's like one in 100,000 people. It's extremely rare compared to AMD, and that's where I, I get this zebras versus horses thing. I did have a case of vitamin A deficiency with a patient of ours that had bariatric surgery. So it does exist, but it's extremely rare in our country because of our supplementation with our um, modern Western diet, honestly. These particular um, codes are the most frequent that you would use or, or come across. And I can even whittle that down a little further in saying that these two um, you're going to use most frequently the abnormal dark adaptation curve and the acquired night blindness. So when we think about Jane, when we go back to our patient, we're going to uncover one simple question. And, and we do this in our clinic just by asking in the history, you know, do you have any flashes, floaters, curtains, um, dryness, itching, tearing, burning, all the things that we would normally go through from a symptom standpoint we've just added, have you experienced any trouble seeing at night as you've gotten older? And if the patient says yes, 
to that, we're going to run that rapid test under the CPT code of 92284 with the acquired night blindness code. If Jane passes and she dark adapts within less than six and a half minutes, then the instrument will actually time out. So if she passes and normal patients pass in somewhere between two and a half and four and a half minutes, so it's not a lengthy test by any means, then we're just going to say, hey, Jane, you did a great job. We want to bring you back next year and retest you on this particular technology because age is the biggest risk factor for this particular disease. If Jane decide, uh, or fails the test and her rapid test times out and is greater than six and a half minutes, the test will stop. And we're going to bring Jane back for an extended test and do some baselining with an OCT, um, maybe a 10-2 visual field and uh, a medical office visit to deliver this diagnosis because we know she's got the disease. And based on where Jane actually does dark adapt, we'll di dictate how frequently we bring her back to uh, test her. And so kind of want to bring Jane back into the picture here and, and show um, some change over time for Jane as we followed her through our clinic. We, we initially listened to her chief complaint She's having trouble seeing at night, so we did the rapid test. Unfortunately, it timed out at six and a half minutes. She didn't pass. We know she has AMD. And we bring her back to baseline her. And Jane comes back a week or two later. We run the extended test. And at the extended test, she times out at 8.2, which is great. Low risk for Jane, um, but we're going to follow her over time. And as we follow her every six months, we noticed that her disease state is pretty stable, and that may be because we decided to prescribe a nutraceutical for Jane because, again, it's oxidative stress, um, and reducing that oxidative stress is key. We've asked Jane to modify her diet, have more exercise, all those sorts of things. If, if Jane happened to be a smoker, we'd ask her to quit smoking. So we want to make sure she's, she's staying relatively stable. But if something started to change with her as we were following her every six months and she was actually starting to get worse, we would have a serious heads up before Jane lost her sight. And the beauty of this particular test is as we're following them for loss of function, if she gets closer in the extended test to this 20 minute mark, where actually the extended test will time out, we know she's at great risk for CNB. And so I'm not necessarily testing Jane as frequently with my dark adaptometer, but I am testing her with my OCT because I want to find CNV at the earliest stages well, well, well before Jane ever loses any sight. Here's where optometry wins. If we can send Jane to the retinal specialist at the first sign of CNV, maybe she's 20-30 vision or better, now we've changed the outcome of this disease. Retinal studies show that Whatever visual acuity we send them over at initially, five years later is what the acuity is maintained at using injections. So they're not doing anything to improve the visual outcome, but they're maintaining it over time. If we send them over a 2030 or better vision instead of 2200 or worse, it's a huge win for this particular disease state. And that's where optometry can really change the entity. So when we're looking at Jane's particular outcome, we want to flatten that that white line, we wanna take that curve and kick it down the road so that Jane's vision actually outlives uh, Jane, ultimately. That's our goal. Any questions about that? Because that's a, that's a conversation that we're really 
struggling to get across to optometrists at, at this state. And not only can you identify the disease, but you follow the disease. Well, I think, I think Amanda, um, obviously I, I am jumping in because I, I think of this, um, obviously from a patient perspective where we want to do the best job we can for patients. But in the bigger healthcare realm, when we think about that $30 billion that you referenced before, you know, one of the largest direct costs, of course, is injections. And, um, and when we try to bend that cost curve down, when, when optometry can come in and actually do that, um, that's where our real value is. And, and so, um, so I think, you know, we talked about vision source and, and being able to, to move that cost curve because we're aware of new technologies and more cost-effective technologies. Um, I think it's so important for us to understand that, that we are really a player in this and, uh, and we can be a, a big player in it uh, to the benefit of our patients, but also to the benefit of our profession. Absolutely. I, I think that we're more than a player. We're, we're leader in this, Chris, because nobody is taking this particular entity on. They're waiting for vision loss to occur and treat after the fact, whereas we can prevent the vision loss from occurring in the first place. And that changes the outcomes, both from a, a patient standpoint, but a cost standpoint for for them. And, and you better believe insurance companies are all over this right now. It, it is the number one line item from a cost standpoint uh, that they have to deal with. And, and if we can change that, yeah, optometry is truly on the map and, and the vision source optometrists are definitely leading that fight for sure. So what are we going to do when we find Jane? Once we've diagnosed her, um, what's our treatment plan for her? And I hear from doctors and, and students, especially even today, that there's not anything we can do, right? There's no treatment for AMD, right? Um, that's, that's what we hear over and over in the market. But one of the biggest things we can do is, is certainly to talk about smoking. Uh, it happens to be the largest modifiable risk factor for, for the pro progression of both CNV and geographic atrophy. And Current smokers carry up to a almost five times higher risk than non-smokers for, for late AMD. And uh, so if we can identify that, um, it, it's pretty valuable. What they tell us, though, is that uh, most of them were not advised to stop smoking. And I find that ludicrous <laughs> in our clinic because we talk about it all the time. Um, but they also don't understand that smoking can contribute to blindness. So almost half of them uh, have never heard that. So it, it's interesting uh, when you ask them. So, I, you know, I always take this with a little grain of salt. You know, we talk to our patients. Back up optometrists are excellent about talking to their patients. So it may be that they're not listening and this is what they're reporting. But it, it harks back to the fact that, that uh, Nobody wants to lose their vision, and I think this is a very engaging conversation to have with them. It's certainly impactful, and I've had a number of patients quit smoking because we told them, you know, they, they're at risk for losing their vision. That's not something they really wanted to, to uh, deal with. Amanda, if I can ask you, um, you know, when you're talking about, about smoking, I think one of the things that, that might be a challenge is that, you know, I think a lot of doctors might think, well, this this you know, this patient has heard don't smoke from every single doctor that they've, that they've encountered, or we assume that. Yeah. So can, you give, can you give everybody a sample of what does that conversation sound like when we're in clinic with you uh, and I'm a smoker and I've got, uh, let's say a delayed dartic adaptation. Um, what does that sound like to me? I literally will tell them they carry an up to five times greater risk for developing the worst type of this particular disease. 
Um, most of them, Chris, actually know someone that has a disease or, or had a disease or, or who's going through retinal injections currently. And I, I didn't understand this as a clinician. You know, we didn't want to talk about AMD from an optometry standpoint because it's a tough conversation and we didn't have a, a solution to the problem. But our patients understand this disease much more than we give them credit for because of a relative or a neighbor or a pastor, someone who's got the disease or being treated for it. And so they know a lot more about this. When they understand that their vision is at risk, it's a much easier conversation to have about the smoking cessation than I would equate, a, say, a diabetic patient, for, for instance. And I don't know why that is other than maybe the fear factor of, of going blind. And they know folks who have lost their sight to this particular disease more so than even diabetic retinopathy. Um, but it, 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 it is what it is. And they tend to listen. It, it, this happens to be the most engaged patient population I've ever seen in my clinical career over 20 years. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that. Yeah. Thanks. So when we look at um, our treatment recommendations, um, so the rest of the conversation ends up talking about things like nutritional supplementation. I mean, you know, our Western American diet is, is pathetic. Um, we tend to be increasing inflammation, oxidation uh, throughout our entire bodies. And so we're going to talk about the benefits of supplements, specifically antioxidants, because we know that that cholesterol slick is causing oxidative stress. So why wouldn't we want to prescribe an antioxidant in this particular case. It, it just makes sense. And we know good studies, including the ARED studies, um, allow for benefits to that in certain percents of population. We're going to talk about lifestyle modifications and, and diet and exercise, uh, specifically some omega-3s, Mediterranean diet, which really is a diet rich in protein and plant material. And exercising, it turns out that, that moderate exercise, just walking a couple city blocks, re reduce your risk of acquiring wet AMD by about 16%. So I feel from a clinician standpoint that walking two city blocks is the type of mobility that most anyone can achieve. It's not strenuous exercise. Um, for our wheelhouse, we really want to engage um, other professionals in this fight. So we're going to work alongside a cardiovascular team, our primary care professionals, to really make sure that diabetes, high cholesterol, and body mass index are all under as good control as it can possibly be because it, it carries risk for increased progression of AMD. And then the cool thing about, you know, those first three items, any doctor could, could do or prescribe, but the last thing that we have um, in optometry or ophthalmology is that we, we can provide retinal light protection with our um, opticals. So we want to make sure UV is protected and, and uh, high energy blue light is also being protected from for the progression of this particular disease. And again, some of these things, whether you decide to sell nutritional supplementation or, or even uh, amp up the retinal light protection in your clinic, but some of these things are, you know, additional revenue sources in your clinic that you might not have had before you were identifying this particular disease process in the in the quantities that uh, is there. So we're really proposing this ele elevated level of care for AMD and I really feel Vision Source has the ability to lead this fight. The AOA hasn't updated the standard of care for AMD since 2004 
they're working on it. Um, but it's a difficult task with a team of volunteer optometrists, and, and that can take them up to three to five years to complete as they weed through the entire history of publications related to this particular disease. So I always ask doctor, in the meantime, while that is being updated, do we currently want to let our patients lose their vision? Can we afford to do that as a profession? So if we apply two very, very consistently practice standards of care that we, we use for glaucoma, if we're going to apply that to AMD, we're going to look at the structure um, by identified cup to disc ratio. We're going to test function of glaucoma with our visual field testing. And we're going to take into consideration a number of risk factors, IOP, corneal thickness, nap corneal hysteresis, you know, age, race, family history, diabetes, all those things into play. And if you take that model and apply it to AMD, you can, you're going to do the same thing. We're going to look for structural functions with the presence or absence of drusen. We're going to look for functional loss with impaired dark adaptation. And then again, take into multiple risk factors like macular pigment optical density, contrast sensitivity, genetic testing, age, of course, is the biggest one, family history and smoking, all those things we've discussed so far. So I think it's very, very simple for us to apply these, these things. And if you think of glaucoma as an entity or disease state that optometry had to walk through, it took us 25 or 30 years for our, our optometric colleagues nationwide to not only become comfortable treating glaucoma, but also to be able to do it from a legislative standpoint. And it's interesting when you look at that, we don't have any of those barriers for AMD today. We can actually apply the level of knowledge that we have and the technology that's available and take care of these patients at the highest level. So we should be able to flip the outcomes of this disease in, in two years and not 20. And that's been kind of my, my um, reason for getting up in the morning is to make sure that, that as, a, as an entity, optometry is really taking that step forward to stand up and say, yes, we can take care of these patients, we will take care of these patients, and make sure that they never lose their sight from this particular disease, not permanently lose their sight anyway. Awesome. Awesome. So our, our company has been very good about... Um, delivering this particular technology. We have an entire team, the customer success team that installs, trains, and integrates this particular technology. So the box just doesn't show up and we expect you to uh, implement it. We really truly try to walk through this with you to make sure that it's being um, implemented in the, in the way that is most effective for your particular clinic. Um, and that depends on the number of rooms you have, the number of doctors you have, the number of staff or clinical folks that you have working patients up. So there are a lot of variables that go into this, and we understand that. But it's really kind of a neat or unique program that most other uh, uh, companies aren't really employing, at least not in my experience from our clinic. I don't know, Chris, if you've had any, any other differences, but... Um, yeah, I would say that in terms of... Um in terms of uh, delivering the training and the integration process, you know, I would say that Maculogics is right up there with my experience with um, other technologies like, like uh, LipaFlow, for example. I think they do a wonderful job of helping you train and integrate that into your patient flow. Um, and, and even Optos, especially Optos when, when it was a per-click 
uh, deal where they wanted, they had a huge advantage. So, and that's just a testament to, to Maculogics and their um, ability to kind of integrate this into your practice. You know, it, it goes back to that, that first or second slide where their vision is really to eliminate blindness from this disease. It's not about um, the financials behind this. It's really about the, the vision of no one should go blind from AMD. Just like today in the modern world, no one should lose their vision from glaucoma. So, um, yeah, that's great. I'm glad to hear you say that. There's a plethora of um, information and marketing materials that are available. The AMD Academy is on um, the website and available to current customers. So you can download um, customizable uh, forms for your patients and for marketing purposes. Um, So a lot of great uh, information or pieces of information. So if you want to use a screening, questionnaire for your patients just like you might use a dry eye questionnaire when they first arrive you can do that for amd as well so lots lots of resources Um, and that's really uh, all i have uh, for tonight i i wanted to kind of get through this as quickly as we could if if there's questions or anything that you guys are wondering about this technology i'm happy to answer well let me open up um, if you want to share that if you want to return me to the host um, amanda and i'll open up um I'll open up the lines if anybody has any questions. Brad, any questions? Alex, Sheila? We've got a couple other, I don't see the name. Uh, We've got two other people on the call, but I don't see the name. I just see the number. Any questions about about the science, about maybe even clinical experience from, you know, that we can ask Amanda from her clinical perspective? You had, before you went to work for um, Maculogics, Amanda, you had the instrument for how long? Um, about a year and a couple months. Okay. And I know Pam, I talked to Pam Lowe about this actually on, on one of the podcasts and she's had it for two or three years. Is that right? Yeah, she actually has. It. So we, we were one of the, uh, she was one of the first people we called um, to find out clinically how this particular technology was performing. So, and she was raving about it. So we, you know, it was just another uh, check for us to employ the technology in our own clinic. Can you give me a sense of um, when you, when you, for your clinic, I think, I think it can work differently for different, um, for different uh, ways that you run your practice, but in your practice, um, did you did you use the the screening questionnaire and then same day use your rapid test or did you have them back for rapid tests? How did you work that into your into your practice? So we started um, with the uh, question: Do you have any difficulty seeing at night? Mm-hmm. And we just we just put that into our our um, technicians history questionnaire. So itching, tearing, burning, flashes, floaters, curtains, difficulty seeing at night. And if they answered yes to that, we exited them out of the room, the technician would, and immediately run a rapid test with them. And when we started that particular model, we found that we got um, backed up a little bit based on the fact that we didn't have enough technicians to make that work. Now, fast forward today, we've we've, uh, switched gears a little bit and we've employed some some uh, young techs in fact they're high school students honestly 
um, who are in charge of running special testing, including the ADAPT DX. So it does not slow us down in any way, shape, or form. It is much akin to how we might special test a glaucoma patient if we needed to. Um, and when we bring them back for, for the uh, extended test, we schedule a particular medical office visit, the extended test, an OCT, 10-2, visual field, some of those things that we would normally do as standard of care for um, uh, an AMD patient out there. So that's, that's, um, that was the surprising part of, of uh, implementing this technology. While we didn't do it maybe the exact way Maculogics told us to do it initially. We figured out a way to do it uh, that was best for us and worked out um, to to be okay for the the clinic. And I will say this: a lot of doctors are afraid that if you have to schedule your patient back, they won't come back. Well, that might be true if you're doing a dry eye evaluation. It is not true with this particular disease state as long as you educate them up front. Um, because they are so fearful of losing their sight from this particular disease. They want to know the answer to this. And, and oh, by the way, what's the answer and what are you going to do about it, doctor? And I'm, I'm ready to partner with you. So that, that was really eye-opening, no pun in, okay, maybe a pun intended, um, for, for us that uh, we had such an engaged patient population. Excellent. Well, Amanda, Brian, thank you for being on tonight. We really appreciate it.